Today, we're going to continue in our sermon series on the last words of Jesus. Ross started things off last week with his sermon on Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Today, we're going to turn to the next word. And and I know that you're probably thinking, um, wait a minute, wait a minute, Ross, wait a minute, Mike. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's not one word. You're right. Uh, Each of these is called a word from from Jesus at the cross, but usually they're a phrase. They're a sentence. Uh, There's there's a message that is in these that we need to contemplate. We need to think about because they have profound meaning. Each one of these seven phrases took Jesus a lot of energy and breath to be able to say to us. And these last words are worth our time. And so we're going to look at the gospel of Luke today, chapter 23. Uh, I think we're starting uh, with verse 39 and you can see those words up there. And I just invite you to kind of scan across the screen uh, as I read these words uh, to us. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Are we indeed? And we have indeed been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I, I don't know if you've been here on a Sunday or a weekday, usually on this side of the parking lot, that there is a van that sometimes is parked out there with a bumper sticker that says, I used to be cool. And the kind of insinuation is, I used to be cool, but now I own a van, right? I remember when my son Davis was born, uh, we went from having two normal, you know, sort of adult cool cars, not really cool. We had a Honda Accord for one of them. That's, that's sensible cool, right? But we went from that to having a van. And I remember that sort of regrettable moment where every now and then I was going to have to drive to church in a van, right? In my 30s. And And you know what? I probably looked like the kind of guy that drove a van, but in my head, I wasn't, right? Well, a van turns out to be a really great vehicle when you're going on long trips, especially if you're one of those people that falls asleep really quickly on a trip. Um, And you see, my wife is kind of one of those people. Now, if, if she could muster all of her energy, she can drive all the way to North Carolina without going to sleep. However, if there is even the possibility that she can close her eyes for a minute, she will be out for about two hours. And this usually happens because we go to South Carolina, North Carolina a lot, I-20 right towards, towards Atlanta, somewhere around Pell City or Anniston, almost like clockwork, she's got to crawl through the back of the van to that back seat. This is just the perfect, perfect place to conk out and, and take a nap. So she often does this. 
And we were driving from, uh, from Florida. We were uh, at, uh, at Disney World one year, right around Thanksgiving. And this is when they start playing Christmas music at Disney World all the time. It's like Christmas before you even eat your Thanksgiving dinner, like it is kind of on the radio. And so we were leaving Walt Disney World in, in, uh, in Florida and driving up to South Carolina for Thanksgiving, right? And we're going up there. Now, I grew up in South Carolina, a lot of waterways and bridges. I'm kind of used to all that. And yet, I didn't realize that there was a bridge coming up on the interstate from Florida to Savannah that was essentially like going up the Eiffel Tower height and down and there was just like the guardrails on the side that were concrete and that was it and it was just nothing nothing but a huge arc into the air and marsh and water all around and I don't like heights and I had never really uh, felt something like you might think of as like a panic attack before. That was one of the things in the past couple of years that Ted Lasso, the show, sort of has demonstrated for us. If you've seen one of the episodes, Ted has this sort of panic attack and it starts with his fingers and he feels like he's out of control as the song uh, Let It Go starts playing, right? And he goes out and he just wants to be alone. He needs to get away because he's scared, he's shocked, he's embarrassed, he doesn't know what's going to happen, so he goes out on his own. I started kind of having that feeling as I was approaching that bridge, and I needed help. And Julie was asleep in the very back of the van. And so I started saying, Julie, Julie, but she's out, right? She's out. And I'm about to hit this bridge and go over it. And I just said, Lena, with my daughter, who's 16, but I guess she was like more like 11 or 12 at the time. And I said, Lena, I need you to listen to me and I need you to talk to me. And I just started saying things to her like, what was your favorite ride? What was it? And I just, I needed to not be alone at that moment. And she was probably wondering, leave me alone and let me watch my shows, right? She wanted to watch whatever she was watching on her, on her screen there. And here was her dad asking these random questions. And I just needed a distraction. I just needed to not be alone at that moment. And I felt alone because everybody was either asleep or had their headphones on, right? I needed to be with someone because I was going through a scary situation for myself, right? I didn't anticipate it. I didn't know that bridge was coming. They should warn people about this kind of thing, right? And here I was going over this bridge and I was safe every single second that I was going over it, but I'd never felt safe. But thankfully, my daughter put up with me for the 30 seconds it took to get over that giant bridge that felt like about 10 minutes of me driving over it. You know, we don't like to be alone, do we? Sometimes we do. Sometimes, you know, we're the kind of people that need to be alone. We need to recharge and everything. But we don't like to be alone for that long. Even the most introverted people here can go for a little while being alone, but eventually we all need someone in our lives to back us up, to be there with us for our bridge crossing moments in life. None of us wants to be fully alone. And I want to say to you at this moment in Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, he could have been alone at this moment. He could have been alone at this moment as he is taken up to Golgotha, the place called the skull for him to be crucified. He could have been alone. I mean, think about all the people that deserted him at this point. There are so many people that were there waving palm branches on Palm Sunday who are gone. Even his disciples 
are gone. Peter, who came in the middle of the night to kind of get close to where the Sanhedrin, this council, was deliberating about the future uh, of Jesus, even though he got kind of close to that and he was warming himself by the fire, somebody said, hey, wait a minute, you, like, you look like one of those disciples. And he says, I'm not one of those guys. He denies Jesus three times, right? He abandons him. To our, the best of our knowledge, there are no disciples except possibly the disciple whom Jesus loved who was at the cross. Now, there were other women who were disciples there, uh, and there was Mary, the mother of Jesus. So he wasn't alone, but at the same time, he was up on that cross, seemingly alone, and yet he wasn't because there were two people, one on his left and one on his right. These were two criminals. Uh, and I was telling the Bible study group that meets uh, in the fellowship hall at 9 a.m. Uh, that these criminals were either, we think, sort of these low-life criminals, uh, criminals, slaves who ran away, or people that were sort of the lower caste of society that stole something, thieves, or, you know, they did something bad, and their lives weren't really worth much to anything. Crucifixion was one of those horrible ways of capital punishment that, that they reserved for them. And the other, the other people that may have been crucified were people who were enemies of the Roman state. They were people who effectively tried to overthrow the Roman government who was ruling as an empire over the people in Israel. And, you know, crucifixion was a way of saying there is no one who can stop us. There was no one who can overthrow the great might and power of Rome. Look at this and be scared. So Jesus is in that moment, a very, very difficult, terrible moment and he's not alone because there are two people suffering the exact same thing to his right and to his left. And one of them is kind of mean to him, right? He mocks him. And he's not the only one mocking him. The religious leaders and the Roman soldiers are doing the same thing. They're mocking him as well. They're basically saying, you're supposed to be this king. Where are all the people that are going to come take you down and save you, right? <laughs> you're powerless. You're helpless. There's nobody following you anymore. Save yourself if you're supposed to be this, this king and son of God. Even the guy who is the, the criminal mocking him says, hey, save yourself and us. He kind of has that little, like, you know, get out of jail free card too. Like, hey, you know, if you're, if you're so great, save yourself. But if you can, remember me too, right? There's a lot of mocking going on. There's a lot of humiliation going on. And yet, even though Jesus is not alone, he's got his mother and a few others there, women disciples and one disciple that was loved. He's also got this other criminal there who says, hey, this guy did nothing wrong. Jesus isn't alone. There's someone else who is in the midst of that moment trying to speak out and stand up for Jesus. And it's one of the people that apparently was guilty of a crime. He admits it. He says, I deserve this. This guy doesn't. Now, remember, if you were here last week, this is the next couple of verses after what Ross talked about last week. So this criminal who's sticking up for Jesus just heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He saw that compassion. He saw that wonderful heart on display. And he's just basically saying, hey, this guy has got to be innocent. Who can forgive people who do something like that to us? We deserve it. He doesn't. And then he looks over at Jesus and says, Father, I mean, see, he says, uh, Jesus. One of the only places that's recorded that somebody calls him Jesus. 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. God is right there with them. Jesus, the Son of God, is right there in between these two criminals at their very end, the darkest day of their life. And Jesus, God's Son, is right there with them. And I want you to think for a moment. God, the Son, is right there with the criminal who's mocking him as well as the criminal who looks to him for help. Think about that. Whether or not we acknowledge God, whether or not we follow God, God is right there in our midst. And Jesus is just as compassionate to the thief on the other side as the thief on the other, the one that is repentant. He's just as kind to the other person. He may not say to him, today you're going to be with me in paradise, but he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he includes that guy in that sentence too, right? Because he's been hurling insults. He's just as compassionate to the person who's mocking him as he is to this guy. God is with us in our darkest moments. God is with us in those hard journeys. We are never alone in the midst of those things. And often, whether we're a believer or not, God is using those moments, or at least in the midst of those moments, to try to get us to learn to trust him and to love him and figure out what we need to do with our lives in those moments. God does not abandon us to live this life without him. He enters into the mess of this to be with us and to guide us. And I find that a lot of times it's great to think that, but sometimes it's hard to really believe that, right? Because we feel like we're alone. We feel like it's too much to bear. We feel like the darkness is going to overcome it. And yet there is a sense of us that if we really can center ourselves in these moments, we can see that God is, in fact, with us. Here's Jesus, the Son of God, right there with them. They're not alone. And Jesus is just as compassionate as he was before he was crucified. Remember, this is a painful experience. I mean, just you cannot imagine it. And so for Jesus to struggle for every breath and to to be able to say these things takes a lot of energy and, and effort from himself. And I don't know about you, but if I am in pain, it's hard for me to focus on anyone else. I know we have a few people in our church who are nurses or uh, they work in the medical profession and they can tell you that sometimes the people who are hurting the most are the meanest. (laughs) When they go in to try to help them, they're mean. Now, if you were to see them without that pain, they might not be so mean. But when they're in their pain, they can't help it. They just want that pain to end. They end up being mean to people who are just trying to help. And so nurses, doctors, they have to kind of build up this sort of tough, rough, outer person so that they can sort of take all this. I mean, think about physical therapists. They have to force you to do things that are painful, but it's going to help you. And sometimes they can be mean. Now, not every patient is bad, right? If I stub my toe, I cannot talk to anyone else. People will try to talk to me. My family will say, are you okay? And I'm like, leave me alone. (laughs) I, I just can't. There's just, I don't know, so much pain in my toe. But you know what? When you're in pain, you kind of, you can't react to the world. What happens is that you overwhelmingly, probably out of our own biology, we tend to shut down to try to protect ourselves, right? 
Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. There's not a single moment on the cross where he seems to turn inward and only care about himself. Father, forgive them. Hey, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus had every option to turn inward in his pain. He could have said to the guy, hey, don't talk to me. You're a criminal. You deserve this. I don't. No, he is always open with compassion to people who turn to him, even in his own misery. Again, I think this points to the way that God is fully present with us in our own difficult times. You know, one of the things that people ask a lot is, why does God let bad things happen to good people? And that's an unanswerable question. We can give you things about free will. We can give you things about how God intends to use people to heal things in the world. It doesn't really answer the deepest question there. But what we can say is that Jesus was right there in the midst of these two people in their darkest moments, and he is fully present with them. He does not turn away from them. He does not ignore them. In fact, when one of them says, Jesus, forgive me, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. God does not ignore us in our pain. God does not leave us in our darkness. He is fully present with the criminals, and he is fully present with us. Jesus offers not only his life to the criminals and to us, but also his friendship with this man and paradise. Now, paradise, you know, we automatically start thinking about heaven, and that's correct. But I think that paradise is a little bit deeper than that. It's not just this idea that he will be at peace in heaven, but that he will be in an intimate relationship with God. And he already is in that moment. It may not feel like paradise, but he already is in this relationship with God because he's reached out to Jesus. Paradise is both a place that we will go to, but it's also a relationship we can tap into now. And that's what the criminal did. He tapped into that in the here and now. That's one reason why Jesus said, today you will be with me. Not, not after you die, but right now, today at this moment, you will be with me in paradise. So God is with us in our darkest days. Jesus shows this as he is there with those criminals on their, their darkest day. He doesn't offer paradise without relationship, right? He says, you'll be with me in paradise. Not, hey, you're going to get the paradise just because you said that. No, you're going to be with me. There is a relational aspect to this. Jesus and his relationship with us makes a difference. Paradise is about a relationship with Jesus. It's about a state of mind, a state of being, a state of how we live in this world together. Long time ago, there was uh, somebody who tried to describe the difference between heaven and hell. And he said, and this is not biblical, okay? So just know that I'm saying this is just a metaphor, okay? So somebody said that heaven and hell look almost exactly the same. So already you can know, got to be a metaphor. Heaven and hell are almost exactly the same. There's this giant feast. Food is sprayed out on the table like the first Harry Potter movie. Just food everywhere, cupcakes, all this kind of stuff. And, and the, the feast is just laid out. And everybody is hungry, and everybody's so excited to eat. It's just that nobody has elbows. Nobody has elbows. 
And so they, in hell, have no elbows. In heaven, they have no elbows. This is, again, a metaphor. And so in hell, people are trying to get the food, and they have no elbows, and so they're like trying to throw it at their face, and they can't make it. They're just starving, and it's torture because they can't get the food. Same thing in heaven, right? No elbows, all this food, but nobody's hungry. You know why? Because somebody's taking a cupcake and handing it to their neighbor, and that person is handing it. They're feeding each other because it's all about relationship, right? There's a little image of love and perfection that nobody is alone and we're all feeding each other. Now, is heaven and hell like that? No, right? But the image there of a heavenly banquet connects to what we're going to talk about with communion. This idea that it's a place where we're in relationship with God, we're in relationship with one another, and there is no pain, there are no tears. It is love, divine love that overpowers everything. Communion is is said to be a, a foretaste or a preview of heaven. When we come up to communion, everybody has access to the same elements. Nobody is going to go away empty-handed. And everybody who comes up is supposed to be in love with God and, and seeking to make the world a better place. We come to receive God's forgiveness and love and to go out into the world to live for Him. And so, in a sense, the liturgy of communion tells us that this is a table of paradise. And when we come forward, it's not just a religious moment to try to get the little bit of bread and grape juice that we give you. It's an opportunity to remember that Jesus is in this meal, that we are not alone in this world, that he loves us, he forgives us, and he uses this moment to remind us what paradise is truly about. Not just a place we go forever, that is part of it, but it's also a way of living in relationship with the God who loves us so that we can be a part of bringing that love and joy to other people. Jesus is not alone on the cross. And those criminals are not alone either. They've got one another. And God does not leave us alone in this world either. If there are moments where we find ourselves alone, that's where we need to call out to God. We need to call out to the church. We need to call out to Christian community and get involved, even though it can be tough sometimes to do that. We don't need to be alone. And ultimately, God is with us. We're never alone because he's with us. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. That is the gift that was offered to that criminal, and it's the gift that God offers to us too. Today, this moment, this instant, Jesus, God, they're already with you. But you can enter into a relationship with them. You can enter into something even more. Not tomorrow, not next week, not at the end of the time, today. I invite you to really, really lean into what that means for you. What does it mean that God is with you and you are never alone? And what does it mean for you that you can be with him in paradise? Hey, friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. 
As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.